In the early 20th century, Charles Ponzi cheated people out of $200 million in today's dollars, and that included friends and family, rich and poor. He was an equal opportunity crook, and he's a namesake for Ponzi scheme, though he wasn't the first to try this. It's also called robbing Peter to pay Paul, pyramid scheme. There's no real wealth or goods being created, so it's just a matter of time before the unreality of the deceitful scheme crashes on the rocks of reality. The biggest Ponzi scheme in history was perpetrated by Bernie Madoff. He cheated people out of $18 billion. And like Ponzi, he cheated everyone, friend and foe alike. And he did it for decades. Ponzi died in poverty, sick and alone. Madoff died in poverty, sick and alone. And they promised what could not be real, but many really smart people believe them anyway. And both of them experienced judgment, but their sin cost not just them, but many other people as well. So what made them such effective salesmen of unreality? Uh, it's complex. There was plenty of deceit involved. But in simple terms, they were charismatic personalities. They were believable people selling unbelievable ideas. It looked like it worked, and for some people it did for a little while. And then they told people what they wanted to hear. It was an attractive unreality. In chapter 2 of Peter's second letter, he'll talk about God's judgment on deceptive salesmen, false teachers. And a couple of things about judgment before we jump into the passage. First, justice requires judgment. If there's no judgment for injustice, there is no justice. And we all know this intuitively. It's a part of common grace. It's built into us by God. It's why injustice makes us angry. It's why films often conclude with the bad guy or bad girl getting justice and we find it satisfying to watch and if you watch a film where the bad guy doesn't get justice it's very unsatisfying and in judgment can be slow in coming this can cause people to believe they can do what they want without consequence sometimes until it's too late for them I saw a video recently of comedian comedian uh, Sarah Silverman she's passionately telling young people that there is no final judgment that there is no hell and she says if I'm wrong then God strike me dead right now. Then she pauses, waiting, and then as if this proves her point, she smiles and says, see? So many have tested reality on this point. Is God just and does he judge people? The problem is that often by the time people experience judgment, it's a point of no return, and then there's no video of, them, of that happening sometimes. So when it comes to God's judgment, we really should trust his word and not learn from experience. Experience is a terrible teacher in this case. And then three, people, people often will attempt to judge God for his judgment. They're offended by what he's offended by. So they have their ideas as to what he should and should not judge. This changes with time and with different cultures and personalities. They want justice and judgment, but they want it on their terms and their own timing. So Peter was a formerly impulsive man. He was prone to want to take judgment in his own hands, in his own way. And John 20 Peter was in the garden where Jesus was praying and was preparing for the terrible trial to come. And Peter, who had been sleeping while Jesus had asked him to pray, was now wide awake because a group of soldiers and other officials stormed the formerly quiet garden and they threatened to take the Lord away. Jesus was fully able to defend himself if he had wanted to, but Peter pulled his sword and cut off a guy's ear. Peter was physically armed, but he was really spiritually unarmed for what was happening. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now you can bet that Peter was not aiming for the guy's ear. He was aiming for his skull. 
He was trying to kill the guy. He was ready for battle, sort of. Because on that same night, he denied Jesus three times. Where did his courage go then? And the picture that the Gospels paint of Peter at this point in his life is not flattering. He's impulsive and brash. Then he's a shrinking coward. But now, decades later, when he's writing his letters, Peter's not the same person. He's grown. And the fact that he's grown should give us hope and challenge us. There's ongoing debate as to whether people can really change, and if so, how much. And of course people can change, and they do change, and they can change dramatically. But it doesn't just happen. And so Peter, who knows from experience, wrote, and we looked at this passage not too long ago, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and so on. So Peter, the formerly brash coward, has learned something about trusting God. He's matured in his faith in life. He's seen some things. He's seen tyrants come and go. He's seen charlatans come and go. He's seen God's judgment, which is a necessity for a just God in action. He's seen God's grace, which is a reality for a loving God in action. He's 100% confident that God's judgment, like his justice, is a sure thing. And so he's passionate about the truth. And he's passionate against those things that are not true. He's changed. He's not brash anymore. He's certainly not a coward anymore. And though he's more like Christ, he's still Peter. He's still the Peter that God made him to be. He's full of fire still. But a fire in the fireplace can warm a house. A fire out of the fireplace, out on the carpet, can burn a house down. And when Peter's fire was not under the control of the master, it was destructive and self-serving. When it became a spirit-controlled fire, it was no longer full of self. It was true passion, focused, lasting passion. An uncontrolled fire is not freedom. It just leads to a life that will look a lot like the tragedy of the Hawaiian city that burned down last week. Uncontrolled passion leads to nothing but ash in the end. So becoming like Christ doesn't mean we stop being us. It doesn't mean we stop having passion. It means we become the us that God designed us to be. And the us that we would want to be if we had the good sense to know it. So to Second Peter, first, let's back up a little bit. In chapter 1, he wrote, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 2, he's going to write, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter said, in the Old Testament, there were inspired authors of Scripture, true prophets of God, and then there were these false prophets running around among them. And now, as Peter's speaking the truth of the gospel in the New Testament, he said, false teachers are among us still. And two telltale signs of false teachers were they trafficked in sensuality and greed. They make up stories to fit what they're selling, and they're selling what people want to hear. False prophets are salesmen. They're not telling the truth. They're selling what's not true. True teachers are talesmen. They're not selling anything. They're just telling And so these false teachers are selling freedom for personal gain. And the freedom they promise is Jesus has freed you from guilt, so you're free to do whatever you want. No guilt, no judgment, just you doing you. What a deal. And they gain the following, and they can make good money selling people this kind of freedom. 
It was a Ponzi scheme. The freedom fizzled pretty quickly. But Peter wasn't selling anything. He was telling the truth. So he wrote, be self-controlled, move away from the old bondage of your former life, prepare yourself for action, endure suffering. This is no Ponzi scheme. This is lasting riches. This is the true resources of the gospel. And the condemnation of these false salesmen, Peter wrote, has long been hanging over them. Now, Peter had lived, we talked about this recently, under the knowledge of his death. The Lord had told him in general ways how you're going to die. It wasn't going to be pretty. But he didn't live with fear hanging over him because his death was not going to bring condemnation. Peter says they live without fear of condemnation, but God's judgment is not sleeping. So they really ought to be afraid. But maybe they're like Sarah Silverman, another day of doing what I want, another day of, of selling lies and no lightning bolts from heaven. So Peter gives three Old Testament examples of God's sure judgment, and all three point to the reality that God's judgment is sure, and it's in his own time. So first he talks about fallen angels. They rebelled against God, and they will be judged for it. So their experience points to the biblical reality that God's future judgment finalizes choices we make now. In the case of fallen angels, Peter said they stand condemned already. They'll be judged in the future. In the flood, in the time of Noah, Noah was preserved because in a world that had cast off truth about God, though he wasn't perfect, he maintained his faith. And while Noah built, the people mocked, did whatever they wanted. Noah's still building that boat in a field. No rain again today. Noah's an idiot. God isn't there. God doesn't care. And what the flood tells us is though humans can doubt the unseen realities of God, they can't breathe water. The God who made humans and water brought water judgment on humans. And judgment is a real and sobering reality for a just God and a sinful people. So Peter's not mean or cruel in his very direct words. These sellers were cruel. They were telling people what they wanted to hear regardless of the cost that was going to come on them. The third example was the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was rescued, Peter writes, because he was a righteous man. If you read Lot's story, this can be puzzling because Lot was a pretty messed up guy. But relative to those around him, he was a stand-up guy. This is how bad things had begun, become. So it offers hope. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faith, even a stumbling faith, stumbling in the right direction. The right direction is put your faith in Christ. So God knows how to rescue his own, Peter writes. And this is to a church that's suffering under the murderous hand of Nero. So it would have been very important and encouraging. So Peter is reframing what they're seeing. Parents often do reframing for their kids. In fact, it's a lot of what parents do is reframe. You don't feel like it, but you must because it's better. I know you don't want to. This is important. You may think I'm mean. This is love. On and on, parents reframe. And children, if allowed to go their own way, will use their freedom to ruin themselves. They've not learned that freedom is the presence of self-control, not the absence of parental control. So in verses 10 until the end of chapter 2, Peter uses some really strong language to warn about the coming judgment on false teachers. And if you read it and don't understand where Peter's coming from, it can sound derogatory, but it's not derogatory, it's descriptive. Let me read. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in daytime. They're just unashamed about what they're doing. 
their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they were intermingling with the church and trying to bring people down. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they've gone astray. That sounds pretty harsh. But here's what he's saying. He said they're like irrational animals of instinct. They're like a deer. The deer doesn't act with wisdom and faithfulness. The deer doesn't get up and have its quiet time and decide, how do I please God today? It does what its instinct tells it to do. And then it's hunted by humans and consumed by humans. And when Peter says they're like cursed children, this is descriptive. This is the fact of their choices. Joseph, back in the Old Testament, said to the people of Israel, you can choose blessing or you can choose cursing, to be cursed. If you choose blessing, you'll choose the way of God. And so these false teachers have chosen the way of being cursed. They live controlled by instinct like an animal does. And this ongoing choice to live outside the confines of the way God designed the world is going to lead to their judgment. He says they're waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They don't deliver on their promises because there's no truth in them. So they're waterless springs. They were the cool, exciting, revolutionary new teaching, new understanding, new book, new podcast, new, new, new. And people flock to this new source of truth. And then after they get there, it's just an empty stream bed. There's no water. And humans are insatiable in their quest for new and more interesting. I've watched over the years as a man or a woman becomes enthralled with another man's wife or another woman's husband, and this new person is so much more exciting, less ordinary, less boring than their spouse. Then they find that this boredom, driving a lust for different, is a waterless spring, because guess what? This new person is now quickly not so new anymore. It's all so very stupid and, and tragic. How are we attracted to waterless springs? Jeremiah 2 says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the well of living water. Then they've dug their own wells, wells that can't hold water. I think it's because we're easily bored. We're looking for the new, the better, the easier, the more exciting. And people are prone to trade the fire of a long passion in a single direction for the ash of a burned out life. I've seen people over the years bored with the Word of God and just the Spirit of God and worship with the people of God just move from church to church looking for something to fix their boredom, something to quench their thirst for something new and exciting, something that they can experience that will authenticate their faith. I need an experience. I'm tired of this passionless plotting. Well, then plod with passion, but don't chase experience. It's a trap that you're going to find it hard to escape from. And when people go looking for a church to tell them, that they can, you can do whatever you want with your lives and still be pleasing to God, they're going to find it. If you really want someone to tell you what you want to hear and you're willing to pay for it, I guarantee you'll find it. And they're going to they're experience what Peter describes as a mist driven by a storm. And what he's describing is there's a drought and you kind of feel like, wait, wait a minute, there's a change in the air. Finally, there's relief coming. There's some water coming, but it's thunder and lightning and no rain. It's smoke and mirrors, no life, just ash. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to him, to that he's enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome... 
The last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than, than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So we're going to land on verse 19 in a minute, but let me address who Peter's talking to and who he's talking about here. He's talking to his dear friends, those he has high spiritual hopes for. They're going to endure because their faith is sure. He's talking about those who are intermingled among them who appear to be believers but are not. They're dabbling in the faith. They sort of tasted some of the, some of the goodness of God because even a non-believer can practice truth and benefit from it but they've not embraced true faith. So if you read Peter's letters, he writes like this to his fellow faithful, grace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Christ our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and goodness, godliness through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. You see that over and over in his letters. And then you see a difference here as he's addressing them. He goes from we and us to they and them. He's not talking here about believers who've fallen away. He's talking about those who never did embrace faith. They know the way of righteousness. They've toyed with commitment, but they, but they didn't make the commitment. Now they're making up their own way. And they're, they're trying to entice the faithful to join them in their faithlessness. And so Peter says, don't do it. There's no water there. There's no life there. There's no liberty there. Verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. And so this great sobering summary statement is where I want to focus our final attention. Just before this, in verse 18, Peter wrote of those who speak loud boasts of folly and enticed by sensual passions, those who barely escape a life lived in error. And the word he used in the Greek, loud boasts, is a word that means something that's unnaturally swollen. It's like a river breaking out of its bounds. So the words, they're bombastic, they're arrogant, they're over the top. And so instead of people hearing this over the top language and saying, really? I don't think so. This sounds foolish. People are taken in by it, by the loud, confident, arrogant folly. Why? Well, because this bombastic language is promising people freedom. And specifically in Peter's circumstances, it was the freedom to be spiritually saved and do whatever you want with your body. And this false dualism was common then and now. Jesus saves your immortal soul, do whatever you want with your mortal body, it's up to you. Paul addressed this in Romans 6. He said, shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? God forbid we die to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? So this twisted argument was, the more we sin, the more grace we need. Sin more so you get more grace. Win-win. Win for you, win for God. It was so dumb, so irrational, I'm sure it made Paul feel like his head would explode. And for some people, it's like, this sounds great. What's not the like? I can have heaven then and do whatever I want on earth now. And Paul countered, why would you offer your bodies to sin to become a slave when God's rescued you from all that? And Peter writes much the same. They promise you freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So look at them, Peter said. Look closely at them. Keep looking. Do you see freedom there? And if you study the lives of thinkers in history, the influencers of the past who now have shaped the lives of million, their personal lives were almost always train wrecks. Carl Truman does a masterful job of demonstrating some of this in his book, Strange New World. 
And he gives the names of some of these key thinkers, how they influence our lives now. And you can go do your research and see how messed up their lives were. Everybody around them was miserable. And some would counter, well, I know plenty of Christians who believe in orthodox doctrine, but live just as messed up as some of these non-Christian philosophers. And that's not a counter to Peter's point at all. He would agree. He would say, yeah, anybody who fails to live the gospel truth is not going to experience gospel freedom. Doesn't matter what they say about themselves. He's addressing those who promise freedom apart from faithfulness to Christ, but then they don't even live in freedom themselves. Whoever, whatever overcomes a person to that, he's enslaved. This is indisputable. Just think about it. I've been overcome by waves before. I got in over my head in some ways. I was overcome. I went where the wave wanted me to go. Didn't matter where I wanted to go. The same is true for sexual appetite, quest for power, pride, anger, you name it. Whatever overcomes me, by definition, enslaves me. It removes liberty from me. And there's one exception in all of human experience, and that is when I'm overcome by Christ, when I become a willing bondservant, as Paul wrote, of Christ, then I become truly free. When I say yes to Jesus, with a corresponding no to all that's not Jesus, then I'm saying yes to liberty. And you can work all this out for yourself. This is intuitive. You can learn this from experience. When you've done whatever your current desire demands you do, whether it be something you consume with your body like drink, drug, food, sex, or you consume something with your mind, bitterness, fear, discontent, pride, lust, you know from experience that that self-expression took your freedom. And this self-expression is not the path to freedom. Of course, self-repression is not the path to freedom either. Both are misguided. Freedom is found in surrender to Christ as king. And ironically or tragically, the pursuit of unrestrained passion leads to a life void of real passion. The demand that the fire not be contained, I will not be contained, I'm going to do what my passions want, is the fire jumping out of the fireplace and it burns down everything, there's nothing but ash left. Fire controlled by the Spirit means warmth and life and beauty for us and others for the long haul. So Peter didn't lose his passion, Christ matured it. And those who chase passion apart from Christ find only ash in the end. Those who chase Christ live with an enduring spirit-controlled passion. Peter experiences personally. He wants it for his dear friends, and God wants it for us. But we have to resolutely believe the gospel of which Peter was a talesman. He wasn't a salesman. He was a transformed, passionate eyewitness. And we have to refuse to be taken in by the salesmen who traffic in false freedom that leaves people enslaved. There's a lot at stake here. In fact, everything's at stake. That's why Peter's so adamant. So let me finish with a story. Years ago, a man I didn't know and who was not a part of church called me, and he said he was really concerned about a, a friend who was a married female um, member of our church. And he was concerned, concerned because a married friend, he said, was in an unhappy marriage, and he wanted to help. I don't know why he called me or what he thought he was going to get, but I knew the backstory. And the man was a wolf. He was looking to destroy a family for sensual purpose. I was not polite. I wasn't calm. I wasn't nice. I was a shepherd, but I was what a shepherd is to a wolf. So I told him, you're a sinful, foolish man. You're going to be judged if you don't back off. I called her and said, stay away from him. He's a wolf. He has his interests in mind. He was offended and shocked. I didn't care. 
The family survived, the marriage and the children survived, the wolf went elsewhere. So when you read Peter and you read his language, you go, that's harsh. Peter was a shepherd. He loved his dear friends, and that love meant he would give no quarter to wolves. He was a changed man from his earlier days, and his passion was under the Spirit's control. But when you read this passage, you're reading the passion of a man who knew that truth mattered in ultimate ways. Literally everything is at stake here. And truth matters ultimately. It's not to be trifled with. God is just, and we know justice is right and good. A just God brings judgment. How can it be otherwise? But Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus. His life is death and resurrection. And the gospel of which he was a talesman was where God's justice is satisfied and we escape God's judgment. So he was passionate about this truth. How could he not be? This didn't make him bitter or angry. You know, he would have gladly embraced any of these false teachers who repented. He was a reflection of what Chesterton admonished. Chesterton said, The true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. And so may God grant us spirit-controlled, God-honoring, and other-centered passion for the truth. Let's pray. Take just a minute and be still. Take in what God's been saying to you from his word and then prepare your heart to worship God.